Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Kay Stephen Prince, author of the book Stories of the South, Race and the Reconstruction of Southern Identity, 1865 to 1915. Reconstruction does live on. We are, we are living with it today uh, in a way that I think people may not even really be aware of. We'll discuss the documentation of the still wild Florida by father and son team A.W. and Julian Dimmick in 1908. They were trying to chronicle a way of life that was quickly changing by the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. And we'll talk about the Melrose Ladies Literary and Debating Society. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah, we'll give him a hearty welcome then, hurrah, hurrah, for the men will cheer, the boys will shout, the ladies, they will all turn out and we'll all feel gay when Johnny comes marching home, and we'll all feel gay when Johnny comes marching home. K. Stephen Prince is Associate Professor of History at the University of South Florida and author of the book Stories of the South, Race and the Reconstruction of Southern Identity, 1865 to 1915. We spoke with Dr. Prince just before the sixth annual Gerald Schaffner Lecture on Florida History and Culture at the University of Central Florida, where he was presenting on the topic Reconsidering Reconstruction, Regional, National, and Global Perspectives. Reconstruction is traditionally identified as having lasted from 1865 to 1877, but Prince advocates for extending that date. I do, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's 1877 is absolutely an important moment. I think we need to, to take it seriously, both as a sort of political watershed as well as a, a symbolic moment. You have, If you look at the press in 1877, you have people commenting on this is the end of an era, this is the end of Reconstruction. But one of the points that I've made in my work and that I'm going to make in my, in my remarks this evening is that there are a lot of continuities that stretch through 1877. And if we allow ourselves to be too sort of taken with that moment as an endpoint of Reconstruction, we risk missing those longer continuities. Um, so there are a variety of issues that simply aren't solved uh, in, in 1877. The, the fate of the civil rights, political rights of the freed people, the relationship between the sections, the, the role of the federal government. And I think to, to at least as a thought experiment, to, to think in terms of a long reconstruction uh, sort of changes our, our perspective on, on the post-Civil War period and enriches, I think, both, you know, the by taking a longer view, those 12 years between 1865 and 1877 suddenly become more than just a sort of passing fancy or an aberration. They become sort of indicative of a lot of the conversations that will be happening over, over the longer stretch of time. So this is not something I expect to, to necessarily, you know, filter into textbooks necessarily. But I think, I think it's worth at least considering what happens if we, if we don't, you know, stop our story of Reconstruction in 1877 and, and carry it a decade or two further on. 
In his book, Stories of the South, Race and Reconstruction of Southern Identity, 1865-1915, Prince focuses on popular culture as well as politics to increase our understanding of the Reconstruction era and beyond. So what Stories of the South really does is it tries to combine what are generally two separate historical conversations, one having to do with race politics and and Reconstruction, the other having to do with the refashioning of, of the identity of the South um, after after the Civil War. Uh, so I argue that what you see in, in this 50-year period is really a national conversation between Northerners and Southerners, between African Americans and white people about the nature of the South, what this place is, what it has been, what it will be, what its role in a reunited nation will be. Um, and I argue that you can't really understand the story of Reconstruction and particularly the long retreat from Reconstruction without simultaneously paying attention to that larger conversation about the nature of the South. And sort of by its very definition, that is a conversation that is happening in a much broader venue, uh, array of, of venues than, than simply, you know, the halls of Congress and presidential addresses and the places that we usually look for our stories of Reconstruction. So uh, tonight, for example, I'm, I'm going to talk about an event that happens in Brooklyn, New York in 1895, where uh, a theatrical promoter builds a southern plantation, hires about 500 African-American actors to play laborers on this plantation. Their status as free or enslaved is not entirely clear. This, is again, is an event that happens in 1895 in New York. And to me, how can we not include that sort of event? Yes, it's yes, it's theater. Uh, yes, it is. It is a sort of peripheral, bizarre, spectacular, one-off kind of event. But on the other hand, to me, that event tells us everything about the, the sort of long retreat from Reconstruction, the idea that uh, Northerners would have been interested in that event in, in 1895, the idea that you could sort of erase the, the story of emancipation by creating this, this timeless uh, Southern space in Brooklyn. So I think, you know, turning to popular culture, turning to sources that traditionally don't make it into our stories of Reconstruction really has an opportunity to, to enrich what we, what we have to say about the period. That's not to say, of course, that I don't look at congressional debates and presidential speeches. I think these things need to be considered in, in, in tandem is, is really what it is. And to, to view one without the other is to, to miss the significance of, of both, I think. Despite the promise of Reconstruction, the Jim Crow system was firmly in place by 1877, subjugating African Americans in a variety of ways. Prince thinks that's why we should extend the date of Reconstruction. If you're looking for an end to the Reconstruction story, I think it is the rise of Jim Crow, which... Uh, is in its infancy in the 1880s. It's by the 1890s that it's really, uh, you have the, the systematic disfranchisement of African Americans across the South. You have the widespread uh, establishment of segregation statutes. And the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century is also going to be the peak of racial lynching. Um, so to me, that, that's a more logical moment to sort of consider as an endpoint uh, for, for the, the sort of longer retreat from Reconstruction as opposed to that 1877 moment. In addition to the production of Black America in New York, Prince looks at many cultural expressions of history in his book. Sure, absolutely. I mean, the Black America is only the, the 1895 sort of plantation uh, theatrical event is is really only one of, of any number of, of sources. Um, so in other places, I, I spend time looking at travel narratives, um, both authored, authored right after the Civil War and a whole bunch written in the 1880s, Northerners who travel through the South and write of their experiences and, and sort of explain what this place is. 
popular conversations. I have a whole chapter that looks at uh, sort of popular depictions of the Ku Klux Klan and the carpetbaggers as sort of twin poles of a conversation about the shortcomings of Reconstruction. Um, what's really going wrong in the South? Is it the violence of white Southerners in the guise of the Ku Klux Klan, or is it the uh, corruption of, of you know so-called adventurers who come into the South from elsewhere? Uh, I look at a plantation fiction written by Thomas Nelson Page, Joel Chandler Harris, uh, Charles Chestnut's an African-American author who writes some important sort of counterworks to those uh, famous white Southern authors of, of plantation fiction. More widely, I look at, at minstrelsy. Um, so the, the Black America story is part of a, a larger sort of change in, in the tradition of blackface minstrelsy, uh, which gets its, its start before the Civil War, but it remains extraordinarily popular through this period into the 1880s and 1890s. In fact, I think you see some of the most interesting developments in that theatrical form during and after Reconstruction, um, though we tend to think of it predominantly as an antebellum sort of form. It definitely it definitely lasts. So yeah, I mean, in putting the book together, I sort of tried to cast a broad net and to bring in a variety of, of sources and events and perspectives that, that aren't generally invited to the party when we're talking about sort of the literature of Reconstruction and, and its aftermath. And casting that broader net, I, again, I hope, you know, not at the expense of politics, not to the exclusion of politics, but in order to to shed new light on, on political occurrences, I think, I think looking at, at popular culture is, is really useful in that sense. K. Stephen Prince proposes that rather than ending in 1877, the era of Reconstruction could more appropriately conclude in 1915 with the release of the film Birth of a Nation. Exactly. It's uh, that's. I mean, that's where the book ends. It's partially for convenience' sake. Um, you know, I mean, there there are certainly longer legacies of Reconstruction than that. You know, we can we can talk about. Are we still living through Reconstruction? I don't know. 1915, The Birth of a Nation, seemed a reasonable moment. Uh, the film is extraordinarily popular. It is a, a sort of watershed in the history of film, and also a convenient sort of bookmark uh, where this sort of you know magnum opus of Southern lost cause apologia becomes you know. The, the most significant, um, you know, cultural form in the country uh, for, for, you know, a period of time after its release in 1915. Um, so it provides a convenient end, certainly in 1915, but I'm, I'm not arguing that that is in any way, you know, the only place that we could, we could take our story to Reconstruction. I think, it, you know, it's one among many. Prince points out that Reconstruction-era policies are still affecting Floridians today. Uh, one of one of the things that I've been working on recently, one of the things that I, I, I do care pretty deeply about, both as a as a scholar and also just as a citizen of, of Florida, uh, is is Amendment Four, the attempt to to restore voting rights to to 1.4 million Floridians who are, are systematically denied the right to vote due to a prior felony conviction. Florida is one of only a handful of states where it is as hard for former felons to have their voting rights restored. It, it's really out of the mainstream in terms of the, most other states upon the completion of a term uh, in prison, uh, completion of a full sentence, probation, parole, uh, any fines, any sort of restitution, people are immediately eligible to have their voting rights restored. In Florida, there's a five to seven year waiting period plus a waiting list before a personal appeal can be filed before the governor. Long story short, we have a humongous rating list. It's almost impossible to to have uh, an individual's voting rights restored. Uh, Amendment 4, which goes to the voters on November 6th, um, would bring Florida back into line with the national mainstream, uh, would restore eligibility to, to vote to approximately 1.4 million people who currently don't enjoy uh, the ability to vote. Uh, and the connection to Reconstruction, of course, is that the language in question was put into the state constitution in 1868 in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War as an explicit attempt to keep African Americans from exercising the right to vote. 
it is as part of a larger process by which uh, as the right to vote is expanded in accordance with the dictates of the federal government, certain restrictions are put into the Constitution to simultaneously make it that much harder uh, for, for the free people to vote. Um, and that, that is where this, this felon disfranchisement amendment comes from in the first place. It's literally the same language that was put into the Constitution 150 years ago uh, is what voters will have the opportunity to, to erase from, from the Constitution uh, a couple weeks from now. So yeah, reconstruction does live on. You know, it's it. it we are we are living with it today uh, in a way that I think people may not even really be aware of. K. Stephen Prince is associate professor of history at the University of South Florida and author of the book Stories of the South: Race and the Reconstruction of Southern Identity, 1865 to 1915. We spoke with Dr. Prince just before the sixth annual Gerald Schaffner Lecture on Florida History and Culture at the University of Central Florida, where he was presenting on the topic Reconsidering Reconstruction, Regional, National, and Global Perspectives. When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah, we'll give him a hearty welcome then, hurrah, hurrah, all the men will cheer, the boys will shout, the ladies, they will all turn out and we'll all feel gay. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Some enchanted evening. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, at the beginning of the 20th century, Florida was still relatively unexplored, but the father and son team of A.W. and Julian Dimmick helped to document the still wild Florida. Yeah, that's right, Ben. The father and son team, uh, Julian and A.W. Dimmick, first came to Florida probably in the late 1880s, although we're not exactly sure. And like a lot of sportsmen of the day, they came here to hunt and to fish. And A.W. was uh, actually fairly successful New York Stock Exchange. He became a millionaire decades earlier. His son kind of followed in his footsteps, but they both decided that they wanted to give up that career path. And they ended up coming to Florida for several years, beginning in about 1905. Three all the way up until 1913, they spent months in Florida during the uh, the winter period, writing about their experiences, exploring the backcountry of mostly Southwest Florida, but also photographing a lot of the wildlife and and the wild people that were living in Florida at that time. They were trying to chronicle a way of life that was quickly changing. By the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, South Florida in particular was beginning to develop. A lot of people were moving into the area. Area. A lot of major agricultural operations were, were starting up. So it really was kind of a, a, an interesting turn.
turning point in the history of Florida. And the Dimmicks were here to really chronicle that period through their writings. Now, A.W. was was the scribe, if you will. He wrote hundreds of articles for magazines like uh, Outings Magazine and the Field and Stream and things like that. And his son, Julian, kind of became an amateur photographer, uh, semi-professional. He was, of course, trained, you know, at home as, as an amateur, but he developed his skills, which at that time, amateur photography was really in its infancy and would have been very difficult. They're working with large format cameras and glass plate negatives. They were dragging all of this stuff into the wilderness, again, for months at a time. And they were able to capture these really amazing action shots, if you will, kind of early outdoor photography in the uh, beginnings of the 20th century. And and, uh, again, they they captured a a part of Florida that uh, was quickly vanishing. Now, you have here a first edition book from 1908 written by the Dimmicks called Florida Enchantments. Yeah, that's right, Ben. As I said, A.W. was the writer of the pair, and he wrote hundreds of articles for different magazines. But in 1908, they compiled a lot of these articles into a single book, as you mentioned, called Florida Enchantments. And that's what we're looking at today. This is a first edition, first printing of the book. And again, they, along with a, a lot of other people kind of of their time period, these sportsmen-like folks who came to Florida, who also wrote articles and things like that, what sets the Dimmicks apart is the photography. Now, this book, there are about 24 articles. It's a few hundred pages long, but there are about 115 photographs. Every two pages, there's a, a photographic plate in this book. The nature of the photography ranges from wildlife scenes like birds and alligators and things like that that were regularly photographed at that time period. But they also have these great shots of hunting at night, fishing for tarpon, and these tarpon leaping out of the water. I mean, it was very, very difficult to take these photographs, but they managed to do it. And they also managed to photograph Seminole Indians that were living in the Big Cypress Swamp. They interviewed and photographed moonshiners that were living deep in the swamps of Florida. They talked with beekeepers, with folks who were working in the timber operation, who were cutting down big cypress trees. So there was a range of different people that they were also interacting with and who had been living in South Florida, kind of off the grid, if you will. Uh, They were able to interview, included these people in their stories. They talked with Cracker Cowboys, all kinds of people that were part of the fabric of that South Florida culture at this time. And they retrofitted their boat. They had a small houseboat called the Irene that they used to spend a few months on. And they actually built a dark room inside the boat so that they could process the glass plate negatives and then ship those up to New York, where they were originally from. They also sent specimens up to the American Museum of Natural History. A lot of of those specimens are still actually as part of the, the collection there. I'll just kind of briefly open it up. Now, even the the cover is has this wonderful gold, you know, gilt title, and it's uh, elaborately decorated. But the language is really kind of flowery, and, and it's entertaining. When you read through it, you can just hear their enthusiasm coming through. I'll quickly read just a quote here. This is about cruising on the Irene. They say here, quote, The essence of cruising is exploration and adventure. It is the individual's response to the call of the wild, which fills the canoes on the rivers and lakes of the country, lights the campfires, which burn in its wilderness, and puts fever in the veins of every man who has gazed upon the stars from the bosom of old Mother Earth, end quote. And all of these articles are very much like that. It makes you almost want to jump in a canoe and and travel back in time to, to see what Florida was like at that time period. Today, we would consider the Demics to be early conservationists, right? Yeah, I would think so. A.W. in particular, through his writings, again, he he kind of entered this world. He left Wall Street, became a millionaire, left Wall Street. He traveled out into the western United States, came to Florida as a hunter, as a fisherman. But slowly he he began to change his mindset. And as he said in one of his stories, he, he laid down his gun and picked up a camera. He'd rather shoot the wildlife with a camera, of course, with a gun. And, and this is at a time in the beginning 20th century when folks like Teddy Roosevelt, you know, are champions of the 
modern conservation movement. So these are the, the forefathers, if you will, kind of of that movement, and they were a big part of that in Florida. And their photographs are a testament to that. Now, the glass plate negatives were donated to the American Natural History Museum. There were like 3,000 photographs that are part of their collection. They were recently kind of rediscovered in the archives and were published in a series of books. One just features their portraits of the Seminole Indians, which for ethnographic reasons is incredibly important. But then they have other photographs of fishing and hunting and, and the people and places of southwest Florida that are important for historians, but also for environmentalists kind of studying what Florida was like at that time. A really fascinating book. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see some of the Dimmick's work that we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. Some enchanted When you find your true love When you feel her call you Across a crowded room Then fly to her side And make her your own All through your life may dream all alone Once you have found her never let her go Once you have found her never let her go This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is a public historian with the University of Central Florida. She has this look at the Melrose Ladies Literary and Debating Society. Dr. Cynthia Patterson, associate professor of English at the University of South Florida, recently wrote, Catching the Spirit, the Melrose Ladies Literary and Debating Society, 1890 to 1899, an article that was published in the fall 2017 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Her interest in Florida women's clubs in the progressive era came from her earlier research on sewing clubs from the 19th century. Sewing circles were a lot more about political and reform activities than they were about sewing. Many of the sewing circles eventually morphed into literary societies. Dr. Patterson's investigation of literary societies in the late 19th and early 20th centuries led her to the story of the Melrose Ladies Literary and Debating Society. This group arose in Melrose, Florida, very small community still today, in 1890, and it was one of what would come to be hundreds of women's groups in the state of Florida by the mid-20th century. And the club was actually founded by two northern transplants, a woman named Eliza King and her companion, Nellie Glenn, and they had relocated to Melrose using King's small fortune that she had inherited from a deceased father and spouse to invest in orange groves in the state of Florida. And so they got together with six other women and the eight original members of the Melrose Ladies Literary and Debating Society met fortnightly, that is every other week, and they met in the homes of members. Most of them lived in Melrose year round. And so 
they held their meetings to plan activities related to reading, to writing, to debating, and also to be engaged in the reform activities in their little village of Melrose. The Melrose Ladies Literary and Debating Society was one of the first women's clubs in Florida. It was also one of the most radical ones. The Melrose Ladies were a little bit more radical than some of their sister clubs were in terms of at least their reading material. They were talking about sexual relationships and the age of consent for women. They were talking about the lives of black Floridians, how to improve them. They were talking about prostitution in the state of Florida and how to put an end to it. And I did not see evidence of that kind of debating going on in the other clubs whose records I've examined. The Melrose Ladies Literary and Debating Society was ahead of its time. Dr. Patterson points out that their concerns about the rights of women were similar to those expressed by women in the modern Me Too movement. You could actually draw a line from their concern about the rights of women and male abuse of power to today's contemporary Me Too movement. I don't think it's a far stretch to see that they were already asking these kinds of questions and concerned with these issues of the rights of women and male abuse of power then that now are in the media today. I think it's important to note also that most of these women's groups are still in existence today and still meet in their original meeting house, as does the Melrose Group, the same one they erected in the 1890s. Over 200 groups still belong to the Florida Federation of Women's Clubs, and that's just the women's clubs for white women. There was a whole other organization, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, which was also very active beginning in the 1890s. These clubs are still very active in leading reform initiatives in their villages, towns, and cities. The story of the Melrose Ladies Literary and Debating Society shows that the archival records of societies and clubs can be used to uncover the voices of women in Florida history. This is a good time, I think, to put in a plug for saving and preserving the records related to women in the state of Florida. I have read the leading textbooks that purport to teach the history of Florida, and there is very little in there about what women were doing. I suspect that one reason for this is that most of these women's clubs' records are held privately. They're held in the homes of the secretary of the club, in the clubhouse, or a storage unit, some of which are not climate controlled. I was fortunate that the records of the Melrose Ladies Literary and Debating Society had been donated to the University of Florida. Otherwise, this would not have been known to historians. I would urge our listeners to think about the preservation of records, particularly records related to women and what women were doing in the state of Florida and what black Floridians were doing. For the most part, you simply will not find that these kinds of records have been collected and archived in libraries, museums, university archives. So the, the challenge of preserving these histories is very real. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. 
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.